Chapter Two, Part One of Herndon's Lincoln, by William H. Herndon and Jesse William Wyke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ralph Kerwin. Sarah, the sister of Abraham Lincoln, though in some respects like her brother, lacked his stature. She was thick-set, had dark brown hair, deep gray eyes, and an even disposition. In contact with others, she was kind and considerate. Her nature was one of amiability, and God had endowed her with that invincible combination, modesty and good sense. Strange to say, Mr. Lincoln never said much about his sister in after years, and we are really indebted to the Hankses, Dennis and John, for the little we have learned about this rather unfortunate young woman. She was married to Aaron Grigsby in Spencer County, Indiana, in the month of August, 1826, and died January 20th, 1828. Her brother accompanied her to school while they lived in Kentucky, but as he was only seven, and as she had not yet finished her ninth year when their father removed with them to Indiana, it is to be presumed that neither made much progress in the matter of school education. Still, it is authoritatively stated that they attended two schools during this short period. One of these was kept by Zachariah Riney, the other by Caleb Hazel. It is difficult at this late day to learn much of the boy Abraham's life during those seven years of residence in Kentucky. One man, John B. Helm, who was a clerk in the principal store in the village where the Lincolns purchased their family supplies, remembers him as a small boy who came sometimes to the store with his mother. He would take his seat on a keg of nails, and I would give him a lump of sugar. He would sit there and eat it like any other boy. But these little acts of kindness, observes my informant, in an enthusiastic statement made in 1865, so impressed his mind that I made a steadfast friend in a man whose power and influence have since been felt throughout the world. A schoolmate of Lincoln's at Hazel's school, Samuel Haycraft, speaking of the master, says, He perhaps could teach spelling and reading in indifferent writing, and possibly could cipher to the rule of three, but he had no other qualification of a teacher unless we accept large size and bodily strength. Abe was a mere spindle of a boy, had his due proportion of harmless mischief, but as we lived in a country abounding in hazel switches, in the virtue of which the master had great faith, Abe, of course, received his due allowance. This part of the boy's history is painfully vague and dim, and even after arriving at man's estate, Mr. Lincoln was significantly reserved when reference was made to it. It is barely mentioned in the autobiography furnished to Fell in 1859. In 1867, John Duncan, afterwards a preacher of some prominence in Kentucky, relates how he and Abe on one occasion ran a groundhog into a crevice between two rocks and after working vainly almost two hours to get him out, Abe ran off about a quarter of a mile to a blacksmith shop, 
and returned with an iron hook fastened to the end of a pole and with this rude contrivance they virtually hooked the animal out of his retreat austin gallaher of hodgensville claims to have saved lincoln from drowning one day as they were trying to coon it across knob creek on a log the boys were in pursuit of birds when young lincoln fell into the water and his vigilant companion who still survives to narrate the thrilling story fished him out with a sycamore branch meanwhile thomas lincoln was becoming daily more dissatisfied with his situation and surroundings he had purchased since his marriage on the easy terms then prevalent two farms or tracts of land in succession but none was easy enough for him and the land when the time for the payment of the purchase money rolled around reverted to its former owner kentucky at that day afforded few if any privileges and possessed fewer advantages to allure the poor man and no doubt so it seemed to thomas lincoln the land he occupied was sterile and broken a mere barren glade and destitute of timber it required a persistent effort to coax a living out of it and to one of his easy-going disposition life there was a never-ending struggle stories of vast stretches of rich and unoccupied lands in indiana reaching his ears and despairing of the prospect of any betterment in his condition so long as he remained in kentucky he resolved at last to leave the state and to seek a more inviting lodgment beyond the ohio the assertion made by some of mr lincoln's biographers and so often repeated by sentimental writers that his father left kentucky to avoid the sight of or contact with slavery lacks confirmation in all hardin county at that time a large area of territory there were not over fifty slaves and it is doubtful if he saw enough of slavery to fill him with the righteous opposition to the institution with which he has so frequently been credited moreover he never in later years manifested any especial aversion to it having determined on emigrating to indiana he began preparations for removal in the fall of eighteen sixteen by building for his use a flatboat loading it with his tools and other personal effects including in the invoice as we are told four hundred gallons of whiskey he launched his crazy craft on a tributary of salt creek known as the rolling fork along with the current he floated down to the ohio river but his rudely made vessel either from the want of experience in its navigator or because of its ill adaptation to withstand the force and caprices of the currents in the great river capsized one day and boat and cargo went to the bottom the luckless boatman set to work however and by dint of great patience and labor succeeded in recovering the tools and the bulk of the whiskey riding his boat he continued down the river landing at a point called thompson's ferry in perry county on the indiana side here he disposed of his vessel and placing his goods in the care of a settler named posey he struck out through the interior in search of a location for his new home sixteen miles back from the river he found one that pleased his fancy and he marked it off for himself 
His next move in the order of business was a journey to Vincennes to purchase the tract at the land office under the two-dollar-an-acre law, as Dennis Hanks puts it, and to return to the land to identify it by blazing the trees and piling up brush on the corners to establish the proper boundary lines. Having secured a place for his home, he trudged back to Kentucky, walking all the way for his family. Two horses brought them and all their household effects to the Indiana shore. Posey kindly gave or hired them the use of a wagon, into which they packed not only their furniture and carpenter tools, but the liquor, which it is presumed had lain undisturbed in the former's cellar. Slowly and carefully picking their way through the dense woods, they at last reached their destination on the banks of Little Pigeon Creek. There were some detentions on the way, but no serious mishaps. The head of the household now sat resolutely to work to build a shelter for his family. The structure, when completed, was fourteen feet square and was built of small, unhewn logs. In the language of the day, it was called a half-faced camp, being enclosed on all sides but one. It had neither floor, door, nor windows. In this forbidding hovel, these doughty immigrants braved the exposure of the varying seasons for an entire year. At the end of that time, Thomas and Betsy Sparrow followed, bringing with them Dennis Hanks. And to them, Thomas Lincoln surrendered the half-faced camp, while he moved into a more pretentious structure, a cabin enclosed on all sides. The country was thickly covered with forests of walnut, beech, oak, elm, maple, and an undergrowth of dogwood, sumac, and wild grapevine. In places where the growth was not so thick, grass came up abundantly, and hogs found plenty of food in the unlimited quantity of mast the woods afforded. The country abounded in bear, deer, turkey, and other wild game, which not only satisfied the pioneer's love for sport, but furnished his table with its supply of meat. Thomas Lincoln, with the aid of the Hankses and the Sparrows, was for a time an attentive farmer. The implements of agriculture then in use were as rude as they were rare, and yet there is nothing to show that in spite of the slow methods then in vogue, he did not make commendable speed. We raised corn mostly, relates Dennis, and some wheat, enough for a cake Sunday morning. Hog and venison hams were legal tender, and coonskins also. We raised sheep and cattle, but they did not bring much. Cows and calves were only worth six to eight dollars. Corn ten cents, and wheat twenty-five cents a bushel. So, with all his application and frugality, the head of this ill-assorted household made but little headway in the accumulation of the world's goods. We are told that he was indeed a poor man, and that during his entire stay in Indiana, his land barely yielded him sufficient return to keep his larder supplied with the most common necessities of life. His skill as a hunter, though never brought into play unless at the angered demand of a stomach hungry for meat, in no slight degree made up for the lack of good management in the cultivation of his land. His son Abraham never evinced the same fondness for hunting, 
although his cousin Dennis with much pride tells us how he could kill a wild turkey on the wing. Footnote. In a letter of 1865, Dennis Hanks states, Abe was a good boy, an affectionate one, a boy who loved his parents well and was obedient to their every wish. Although anything but an impudent or rude boy, he was sometimes uncomfortably inquisitive. When strangers would ride along or pass by his father's fence, he always, either through boyish pride or to tease his father, would be sure to ask the first question. His father would sometimes knock him over. When thus punished, he never bellowed, but dropped a kind of silent, unwelcome tear as evidence of his sensitiveness or other feelings. End footnote. At that time, relates one of the latter's playmates, David Turnham, descanting on the abundance of wild game, there were a great many deer licks, and Abe and myself would go to these licks sometimes and watch of nights to kill deer, though Abe was not so fond of a gun or the sport as I was. Footnote. Mr. Lincoln used to relate the following coon story. His father had at home a little yellow house dog, which invariably gave the alarm if the boys undertook to slip away unobserved after night had set in, as they oftentimes did to go coon hunting. One evening, Abe and his stepbrother, John Johnston, with the usual compliment of boys required in a successful coon hunt, took the insignificant little cur with them. They located the coveted coon, killed him, and then in a sportive vein sewed the hide on the diminutive yellow dog. The latter struggled vigorously during the operation of sewing on, and, being released from the hands of his captors, made a beeline for home. Other large and more important canines on the way, scenting coon, tracked the little animal home, and possibly mistaking him for real coon, speedily demolished him. The next morning, old Thomas Lincoln discovered lying in his yard the lifeless remains of Yellow Joe, with strong proof of coonskin accompaniment. Father was much incensed at his death, observed Mr. Lincoln in relating the story, but as John and I, scantily protected from the morning wind, stood shivering in the doorway. We felt assured little yellow Joe would never be able again to sound the call for another coon hunt. End footnote. The cabin to which the Lincoln family removed after leaving the little half-faced camp to the sparrows was in some respects a pretentious structure. It was of hewed logs and was eighteen feet square. It was high enough to admit of a loft where Abe slept, and which he ascended each night by means of pegs driven in the wall. The rude furniture was in keeping with the surroundings. Three-legged stools answered for chairs. The bedstead, made of poles fastened in the cracks of the logs on one side, and supported by a crotch stick driven in the ground floor on the other, was covered with skins, leaves, and old clothes. A table of the same finish as the stools, a few pewter dishes, a Dutch oven, and a skillet completed the household outfit. In this uninviting frontier structure, the future president was destined to pass the greater part of his boyhood. Withal, his spirits were light, and it cannot be denied that he must have enjoyed unrestrained pleasure in his surroundings. 
It is related that one day the only thing that graced the dinner table was a dish of roasted potatoes. The elder Lincoln, true to the custom of the day, returned thanks for the blessing. The boy, realizing the scant proportions of the meal, looked up into his father's face and irreverently observed, Dad, I call these, meaning the potatoes, mighty poor blessings. Among other children of a similar age, he seemed unconsciously to take the lead, and it is no stretch of the truth to say that they, in turn, looked up to him. He may have been a little precocious, children sometimes are, but in view of the summary treatment received at the hands of his father, it cannot truthfully be said he was a spoiled child. One morning when his mother was at work, he ran into the cabin from the outside to inquire, with a quizzical grin, Who was the father of Zebedee's children? As many another mother before and since has done, she brushed the mischievous young inquirer aside to attend to some more important detail of household concern. Story from Harriet Chapman The dull routine of chores and household errands in the boy's everyday life was brightened now and then by a visit to the mill. I often in later years heard Mr. Lincoln say that going to mill gave him the greatest pleasure of his boyhood days. We had to go seven miles to mill, relates David Turnham, a friend of his youth and then it was a hand mill that would only grind from fifteen to twenty bushels of corn in a day. There was but little wheat grown at that time, and when we did have wheat we had to grind it in the mill described and use it without bolting, as there were no bolts in the country. Abe and I had to do the milling, frequently going twice to get one grist. Reader's Note Bolting means sifting. End note in his eleventh year, he began that marvelous and rapid growth in stature for which he was so widely noted in the Pigeon Creek settlement. As he shot up, says Turnham, he seemed to change in appearance and action. Although quick-witted and ready with an answer, he began to exhibit deep thoughtfulness, and was so often lost in studied reflection that we could not help noticing the strange turn in his actions. He disclosed rare timidity and sensitiveness, especially in the presence of men and women, and although cheerful enough in the presence of the boys, he did not appear to seek our company as earnestly as before. It was only the development we find in the history of every boy. Nature was a little abrupt in the case of Abraham Lincoln. She tossed him from the nimbleness of boyhood to the gravity of manhood in a single night. In the fall of 1818, the scantily settled region in the vicinity of Pigeon Creek, where the Lincolns were then living, suffered a visitation of that dread disease common in the West in early days, and known in the vernacular of the frontier as the milk sick. It hovered like a specter over the Pigeon Creek settlement for over ten years, and its fatal visitation and inroads among the Lincolns, Hankses, and Sparrows finally drove that contingent into Illinois. To this day, the medical profession has never agreed upon any definite cause for the malady, nor have they in all their scientific wrangling determined exactly what the disease itself is. A physician who has in his practice met a number of cases describes the symptoms to be a whitish coat on the tongue, burning sensation of the stomach, 
severe vomiting, obstinate constipation of the bowels, coolness in the extremities, great restlessness and jactitation, pulse rather small, somewhat more frequent than natural, and slightly corded. In the course of the disease, the coat on the tongue becomes brownish and dark, the countenance dejected, and the prostration of the patient is great. A fatal termination may take place in sixty hours, or life may be prolonged for a period of fourteen days. These are the symptoms of the disease in an acute form. Sometimes it runs into the chronic form, or it may assume that form from the commencement, and after months or years the patient may finally die or recover only a partial degree of health. When the disease broke out in the Pigeon Creek region, it not only took off the people, but it made sad havoc among the cattle. One man testifies that he, quote, lost four milch cows and eleven calves in one week, unquote. This, in addition to the risk of losing his own life, was enough, he declared, to ruin him, and prompted him to leave for points further west. Reader's Note the cause of this mysterious disease was finally identified as the poisoning of the cow's milk, and eventually the cow itself, by a toxin found within white snake root, a plant which grows in the shade of Midwestern forests. End note. Early in October of the year 1818, Thomas and Betsy Sparrow fell ill of the disease and died within a few days of each other. Thomas Lincoln performed the services of undertaker. With his whipsaw he cut out the lumber, and with commendable promptness he nailed together the rude coffins to enclose the forms of the dead. The bodies were borne to a scantily cleared knoll in the midst of the forest, and there, without ceremony, quietly let down into the grave. Meanwhile, Abe's mother had also fallen a victim to the insidious disease. Her sufferings, however, were destined to be of brief duration. Within a week, she too rested from her labors. She struggled on day by day, says one of the household, a good Christian woman, and died on the seventh day after she was taken sick. Abe and his sister Sarah waited on their mother and did the little jobs and errands required of them. There was no physician nearer than thirty-five miles. The mother knew she was going to die and called the children to her bedside. She was very weak, and the children leaned over while she gave her last message. Placing her feeble hand on little Abe's head, she told him to be kind and good to his father and sister. To both, she said, be good to one another, expressing a hope that they might live as they had been taught by her to love their kindred and worship God. Amid the miserable surroundings of a home in the wilderness, Nancy Hanks passed across the dark river. Though of lowly birth, the victim of poverty and hard usage, she takes a place in history as the mother of a son who liberated a race of men. At her side stands another mother, whose son performed a similar service for all mankind eighteen hundred years before. After the death of their mother, little Abe and his sister Sarah began a dreary life. Indeed, one more cheerless and less inviting seldom falls to the lot of any child. In a long cabin without a floor, 
scantily protected from the severities of the weather, deprived of the comfort of a mother's love, they pass through a winter the most dismal either one ever experienced. Within a few months, and before the close of the winter, David Elkin, an itinerant preacher whom Mrs. Lincoln had known in Kentucky, happened into the settlement, and in response to the invitation from the family and friends, delivered a funeral sermon over her grave. No one is able now to remember the language of Parson Elkin's discourse, but it is recalled that he commemorated the virtues and good phases of character, and passed in silence the few shortcomings and frailties of the poor woman sleeping under the winter's snow. She had done her work in this world, stoop-shouldered, thin-breasted, sad, at times miserable, groping through the perplexities of life, without prospect of any betterment in her condition, she passed from earth, little dreaming of the grand future that lay in store for the ragged, hapless little boy who stood at her bedside in the last days of her life. End of chapter 2, part 1 Recording by Ralph Kerwin, Belmont, California